Thank you for your faithfulness uh, to the Lord and His call upon your life. Uh, a few announcements for you. First, if you are interested in being baptized, over the last few weeks you've been hearing me talk about believers' baptism. Uh, on October 7th and 14th, we have uh, informational meetings uh, that will describe to you what believers' baptism is all about. It is, it is a step after we receive Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior. It is a willingness to follow Christ in believers' baptism where we are declaring the old life is buried with Christ and we are now walking in this newness of life. One of the greatest symbolic uh, experiences and, and really pictures in the church. And so I encourage you to be involved in that if you're interested. If you feel like God's calling you to be baptized, we'll have the baptism service here in the auditorium. And it is a very special service uh, here at Firewheel. That'll be at the end of October. Uh, we also have Pack a Box Night at Life Message. We believe that love should be tangibly demonstrated. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to actually model love in service of others. And so we're packing box at Life Message on October 9th from 6 to 7. And then also we're participating again this year in the Tri-City Cleanup. We believe that love picks up trash. And so we're going to go pick up some, some trash at the park we've adopted and join with our local community. And I think we have the greatest message. Do you all agree with that? We have the greatest message of love that demonstrates God can redeem and God can save and God does in, in all kinds of ways clean up communities. And so we are, we are participating in the Tri-City Cleanup. So participate, plug in, get it on your calendar, and let's open our Bibles. Everybody say word. word. We are in Acts chapter 24. We are continuing our steady plod uh, through the book of Acts. We are now in the city of Caesarea as you all remember from last week, we were escorted with Paul out of Jerusalem under the cover of night to escape the clandestine conspiracy of the Jews that had gathered together and agreed to attack and kill Paul. The plan was discovered, it was uncovered by the young nephew of Paul who relayed that intel to Claudius Lysias, the head of the Roman guard in Jerusalem who immediately commanded Paul to be transferred to Caesarea. If you remember from last week, Paul traveled deep. He had quite the entourage. 200 foot soldiers, 200 spearmen, 70 mounted cavalry, and Paul upon a horse. He was escorted out some 67 miles all the way to the city of Caesarea as the claim and the case that is being levied against Paul by the Jewish high council was then escalated uh, to the governor of Jerusalem and the governor of Judea, a man by the name of Marcus Antonius Felix. Now, this gives me opportunity to point out as we study the Bible that it actually took place. The narrative that we are looking at and the narratives of the Scripture took place in actual time and space, real history. And so I am able to go back and not only study the context of the passage, but I'm able to look at historical accounts of these people. And there's much written about Marcus Antonius Felix. In fact, history tells us that he was known for his brutality and his wickedness as the governor of Judea. I quote from an author who writes this, Felix's cruelty and his licentiousness coupled with his accessibility to bribes, led to a great increase of crime in Judea. The period of his rule was marked by internal feuds and disturbances, which he put down with severity. In fact, that was his, his downfall. His severe hand levied against uprisings led to his ultimate dismissal of being governor. He never really got away from his ancient roots as a freedman, uh, which means essentially that he was once a slave turned ruler. 
One ancient historian writes this concerning his administration. He writes, his administration was notorious for its corruption, cynicism, and cruelty. According to the historian Tactius, that was a, a person that was a contemporary of Felix, Felix reveled in cruelty and lust and wielded the power of a king with the mind of a slave. Now this man is going to be oddly used by God to continue Paul on his journey. Where is Paul headed? Do you all remember? Where is he ultimately headed? To the city of what? To the city of Rome. How do we know that? Not only because the scriptures tell us, but because the Lord Jesus himself appeared to Paul while he was in a jail cell at Jerusalem. While he was under guard and under shackle, the Lord appeared to him in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, relaying to him very encouraging words. The Lord said to Paul, take courage. Do not be afraid. You will testify in Rome. In fact, he says, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem... So you must also testify to me in Rome. I believe the Lord at that moment is validating, saying, Paul, you've done the right thing. You've done a good job in Jerusalem. You will now follow through with testifying in the city of Rome. There's some information, though, omitted from the words that Jesus relayed to Paul. First of all, I noticed that Jesus never said it was going to be easy. In fact, he'd need to take courage. He never said it wouldn't be without adversity or without attack. In fact, he said, do not be afraid. And he never said that it was going to be quick. I don't know about you, but there are times where I struggle with God's timetable. Do you ever feel like God should hurry things along? Do you ever get frustrated because things aren't happening fast enough? I was sitting at a stoplight this morning, and all I could think to myself is, why won't it hurry up? Well, the stoplights that we experience in this life are often a part of God's plan, and they have purpose, as we will see this morning in the Scripture. We are going to spend two weeks in the narrative in the city of Caesarea. Paul is going to spend two and a half years there, uh, which we'll, we'll come to see towards the end of our discussion this morning as an important application for our own life. Let's look at Acts chapter 24, verses 1 through 2. Paul was in Caesarea for a short five days before a delegation arrived there, a delegation from Jerusalem, specifically to state their case against Paul the Apostle, who is now Paul the prisoner. They are going to levy a pretty strategic attack against Paul the Apostle. It says in verse 1, After five days the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he'd been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, and, and this is the beginning of this strategic attack and argument against Paul, but it's important for us to get a better idea of where this discussion is taking place. Felix was in the city of Caesarea, and he resided in the Herod's temple, or the Herod's palace, the great palace at Caesarea, where the court case was going to be heard inside of the inner hall of justice. Felix would have entered into the Hall of Justice and he would have taken his seat at the highest seat of authority called the Bema seat. That is the seat of judgment. He would have invited in the delegation from Rome represented by the silver-tongued uh, orator, most likely an attorney familiar in Roman law, Tertullus. Paul would have been ushered in under guard representing himself in this particular court case. We have an artist's rendition of this, this particular palace. It was grandiose in stature. Oh, my gosh. Who's got, the, who's got the laser pointer? Who's got it? Who is it? 
Thank you, Art. He told me he was going to do that. I was like, no, you won't. Yes, he did. So we've got, I'll just use my finger. Art, can you just go ahead and circle that? That is Herod's palace. Can you circle the other side? Also Herod's palace. And you'll notice down here are some natural aquifers and fresh water, but it butted up Eucharist right up against the Mediterranean Ocean. That's killing me, Smalls. I love it. So Paul was taken to this place, and what I love about it, you can actually visit these archaeological sites. This actually took place in human history. Uh, not quite as grandiose today. Obviously, now it is uh, just an archaeological dig and a site, but that is where the palace stood, and inside was the great hall of justice. And so Felix sat on this high seat of authority, second only to the emperor of the entire Roman Empire. So this is a heavy hitter. And Tertullus begins to state his case, and it's fascinating how he begins his arguments. He employs a pretty ancient uh, device or rhetorical tool, as you'll come to see very quickly, disingenuous as it comes across. Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, and everywhere and everywhere, every way we accept this with all gratitude. Isn't that flowery? Uh, verse 4, but to detain you no further, I beg in your kindness, hear us briefly. This man had no kindness. This was a, an ancient tool. It was called capacio benevolenti, which essentially means to capture the goodwill. It was common among rhetoricians and orators to try to gain the approval very early on of the hearer or of the group they are speaking to, and so he employs this device. I find it telling that this Roman attorney spends just about as much time buttering up the hearer, that is Felix, as he does actually presenting the case against Paul. And as I look at this, I see praise that is being lavished on Felix. It is not, like, it is not uh, something that is fitting for Felix. I liken it to lavishing praise upon a pig. Uh, well, who's speaking, I kind of look at it as actually pig lavishing praise on a pig. Anyway, we'll get to that. Tertullus presents three clear accusations against Paul. Do you ever see somebody being praised and you're like, that is not fitting? You see like a world leader or somebody being praised and you're going, that's not fitting. Well, that's exactly what is happening. So we got three clear accusations against Paul. First, he is going to be described as a plague, a sickness, spreading uprising riots throughout the Roman world, a sickness that needs to be eradicated. Secondly, he's going to be accused of being a ringleader of a strange new religion, which was a major no-no in the Roman Empire. And then finally, he's going to be accused of breaking the unbreakable law in the city of Jerusalem. And we'll see that as we look at the argument. Verse 5, he begins his accusations. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world. Now, Rome did not appreciate any form of uprising and revolt. In fact, any type of uprising would often be cruelly addressed through torturous devices like crucifixion or other forms of a torturous death. And so Paul here is described as a plague, a public menace, public enemy number one to Rome, a cultural disease spreading uprisings throughout the Roman world. Secondly, He's accused of being a ringleader of a strange new religion. Tertullus continues, he's a ringleader of this sect of the Nazarenes. In Rome, there were no new religions allowed. In fact, Judaism, the faith of the Jews, was a sanctioned faith by the Roman Empire. 
But by describing Christianity as a sect of the Nazarenes, it is a very derogatory way of saying this is a strange new religion that is stemming from Nazareth, a city that was not respected anywhere in Judea as a cultural menace. Paul is then accused of breaking the unbreakable law. Can you all remember when we looked at some of the archaeological pieces from the temple, and we looked at one ancient placard that was hung at all of the entrances to the temple. Do you all remember what that placard said? Do you all have any memory of that? If any Gentile entered into the inner court of the temple, what would they be under the penalty of? Death. That if a Gentile or a Jew brought a a Gentile in, they had the authority under Rome to put that person to death. It's a very welcoming placard, isn't it? Hey, come worship with us, but don't go any farther because we'll have to kill you. So they accused Paul of breaking the unbreakable law. Look at verse 6. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. I find it fascinating what they leave out as far as the accusations. They leave quite a bit out of the actual uh, narrative. In fact, none of their accusations hold water. And they leave out the fact that they were beating Paul to death when the Roman garrison intervened. But their hope is that this series of arguments will prove sufficient to have Paul immediately either sentenced to death by Rome or turned over to the delegation from Jerusalem so that they could put him to death. And so Tertullus rests his case in verse 8. He says this, By examining himself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. And now it is time for, for Paul to state his case. But I have a question for you. When you look down in your Bible your version of the text, do you notice anything odd? What's that? Do you notice something's missing? You've got verse 6, and then you've got verse, what happened to verse 7? Some of you, anybody in here have a New King James Bible? New King James Version? What's in there? Verse 7, or a King James. You'll see a verse 7. But if you have an NIV or an ESV or an NASB, verse 7 is omitted. I want to just briefly help you understand what happens in in the scriptures at times when there are textual discussions. Okay, so I'm going to ask you to put your thinking cap on. Uh, This might, might seem to be a numbing kind of conversation, but it's important. So in verses 6 and 8, we have what is preserved for us, what most most authorities assume is the earliest reading of these particular verses. And so we have manuscripts throughout history that scribes would take a manuscript and would copy it. Well, over time, there were often additions that were added into the text to smooth it out or to give more explanation. Many textual uh, commentators today believe that verse 7 was added to give a little bit more detail as to the undertaking and what happened to smooth out the text And so what it reads is, he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him, some later manuscripts record, and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. I have a feeling that they would probably have left out anything negative to say about Lysias. That would not help their case at all. And so many, many believe that this, this particular verse or this edition has been added, and so that's why you have a gap between 6 and 7. Does that help you, by the way? Do you appreciate when I do discussions like that as you study the text? And that's why I go verse by verse. And so we see stuff like that, and so if you ever get to a place in your Bible and you'll notice something like that, 
you can dig a little bit deeper and hopefully discover what's happening, or you can just ask me. If you have any questions more about it, I'd, I'd be happy to talk to you about it. So at that moment, uh, Lysias, or Tertullus ends his argument, and in verse 9 it says, The Jews also joined in the charge. Yes, put him to death. He deserves death. All these things are true. And they affirmed all the things that were spoken. And so Felix then turns his attention to Paul. I find it fascinating that Paul begins with the same oratory device. He uses the capacio uh, benevolenti. He, he uses the statement of goodwill. It is, is definitely shorter than his slimy counterpart. But nonetheless, he begins complimentary. Verse 10. When the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. I don't know how cheerful he was at this moment. He's having some pretty serious charges levied against him. I don't know how chipper I would be in that particular uh, atmosphere. But nonetheless, Paul continues, You can verify that it's not more than 12 days since I went up to do what in Jerusalem. He didn't go up to Jerusalem to cause an uprising or conflict. He had gone to Jerusalem to worship And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up the crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring against me. Paul's like, look, I was only there uh, for a series of days. I certainly wasn't there long enough to stir up an uprising. I went there to worship. They found me in the temple. They're worshiping. And he begins to take apart their attack. And secondly, he goes, and as far as this being a sect of the Nazarenes, no, 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 no. Christianity, the people of the way, there's nothing new about this. In fact, Jesus is the fulfillment of ancient prophecy. He is the fulfillment of the law. There are many today who believe that Christianity is, was manufactured as a religion or as a faith system. And students, you're going to hear this. You're going to have teachers tell you that Christianity first came into being or was created in the first century. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the promises that have been made to the people of Israel. Look at verse 14. Paul says, But this I confess to you, that according to the way, that is according to Jesus, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers. That it is through Christ that we worship the Father. Jesus himself saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That Jesus is the way. Jesus is the gate. Jesus is the doorway into a right relationship with God, the Father. And he says, through Christ, I believe everything that is laid down in the law and written in the prophets. I, too, believe everything that is recorded in the law and the prophets of the Old Testament. I believe it. The law was always pointing us to Christ. Every sacrifice of the Old Testament that was laid down was specifically pointing to the true Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Jesus is the ultimate sacrificial Lamb. In fact, he is the fulfillment of all of the prophecies and all of the promises of the Old Testament. Paul goes on, he says, these men, they appreciate, they they respect the law as I do, but I have a true hope in God that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. But there was a major difference between the way Paul perceived the, the salvation through Christ and how this delegation from Jerusalem believed they were made just. How do you believe, or what do you think was going through their minds as this delegation from Jerusalem when it came to righteousness? How were they made righteous in their minds? Through what? How was, in the mind of the Jewish high priest, 
in the Jewish council, in their minds, how is a person made righteous? Through the law. Through adherence to the law. In fact, it is the law that testified that they are guilty. The law does not have the power to save. It only has the power to reveal our sinfulness and need of a Savior. We are made just, we are made righteous through faith in Christ, and we anticipate this resurrection. And so Paul says, look, I am not the ringleader of a new sect. I'm preaching the fulfillment of the very scriptures they hold to. And then Paul says something very interesting. And something that's been rattling around in my mind all week. And here's the the reality. Paul says, look, I not only strive to preach the gospel with my my mouth, but I, I live a life. That is impacted by the gospel. Verse 16. Paul says, so I always take pains. I always strive. I always work to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. That is, Paul set out to please God in every aspect of his life. And he lived in such a way that he was able to have a clear conscience before the Lord and before people. And there are times where we spend much of our life trying to impress people without any thought of God, which leads to a conflict, a conflicted conscience. Or we live in such a way before the Lord, but then we hide it before people, which leads to a conflict or conflict in our conscience. Paul says, I strive to have a clear conscience. One of the greatest gifts that we can have is a clear and authentic conscience that we are not pretending. There is nothing more awful than being the great pretenders. We should strive to live a life of faithfulness and authenticity before the Lord who sees it all, by the way, which sounds awful. I don't know about you, the thought that God sees every thought, every meditation, every motivation, that seems awkward and uncomfortable. I'll tell you, it's the greatest blessing in the world that you do not approach God having to hide. A clear conscience is being able to approach him just as you are, and what you discover is he doesn't wag his finger at you. He welcomes you in grace, having a clear conscience, a gift. Paul continues, after several years, I came to bring alms. I I came to bring an offering of worship and to present gifts while I was doing this. They found me purified in the temple. There were no crowds. There was no tumult. There was no uprising. In fact, do you all remember, why was Paul in the temple that particular day he was seized? Do you all remember? When he came to Jerusalem, that's right, when he came to Jerusalem, the, the leaders of the church at Jerusalem encouraged Paul, in fact, ordered him almost to, to follow through the law, the rites of purification, so that he could show those who were zealous for the law that he was still a faithful Jew. Paul didn't have to do that. Paul knew that through the ceremonial customs, there was no righteousness earned, but he behaved like a Jew in order that some might be saved. And so when Paul was found in the temple, he was purified. According to ritual custom, he was bringing an offering. He wasn't stirring up any crowd. In fact, it was some Jews from Asia, he scribes. They ought to be here before you and make accusations should they have anything against me. It is those Jews from Asia who cried out, This is the one! Brothers, seize him! Paul was unrightly taken into custody. And of course, those Jews from Asia are not a part of the delegation. Verse 20, he says, Let these men say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, I cried out according to them, or among them, it is with respect to resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. He's like, look, the only thing that I did was when I was before the high Jewish council, 
I cried out that I'm here because of resurrection. And it created conflict, but it was a theological conflict between the high council itself. And if you'll remember, if it wasn't for the fast thinking of Claudius Lysias, Paul would have been torn to, be, to, torn to pieces by that high Jewish council in that moment. And so Paul's like, look, I have no idea what they're bringing against me. None of this stuff holds water. And then we read this very interesting note in verse 22 that like shocked me this week. Because this is not the guy that I would have thought God would have used to like intervene on behalf of Paul. Verse 22, but Felix, did, as I described Felix to you, did you anticipate this being the guy that intervenes on behalf of Paul? This isn't the guy who I thought was going to be the hero of the story. He's not, well, we'll see. He goes from being like a hero for a moment, then back to being a zero, but you'll see that. Having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, so he knew about Christianity. How do you think Felix knew about Christianity and the faith of the way? We'll get to that in just a moment. I got a few ideas. He put them off. That is, he completely tabled their discussion. That is, he completely shut the delegation down. I would love to have seen Tertullus and Ananias and all the guys sitting there going, oh, I guess we leave now. Like, just like walking out of Jerusalem being shut down. He says, when Lysias the Tribune comes down, I will decide your case. He didn't need Lysias to come. He could have decided the case right then, but he knew that the accusations were not accurate. He postpones their court case indefinitely. And the text says that he knew a lot about Christianity. And I've done some digging, and here's, here's some stuff that I've unearthed. Felix had a wife, and we're going to meet here momentarily. She was a fascinating woman, and she came from a, a very important family, especially as we look at the narrative of the New Testament. In fact, her family of significance, her great-grandfather was Herod the Great. Herod the Great, who rebuilt the temple at Jerusalem, but who also ordered the death of the innocents in Matthew chapter 2, that all children two and under would be put to death because he heard that the king of the Jews had been born, trying to put to death Jesus. Her great-uncle was Herod Antipas, the man who had John the Baptist beheaded at the behoovel of Herodias and his desire to marry her. Her father was Herod Agrippa, the same Herod who had James the Apostle beheaded and put to death. So needless to say, Felix's wife was pretty familiar with Christianity. In fact, her family was heavily involved in the historical narrative, as we read in, in the New Testament. Not to mention, Felix had been governor of Judea for roughly six years. That would have allowed him ample time to hear. And so in verse 23, he orders that Paul the apostle is essentially put on house arrest. Verse 23, then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be pre prevented from attending to his needs. He's like, look, your homies can come over. What do you all see there? He seems like kind of a nice guy, this Felix, huh? We had a New Yorker in the first service. He goes, he sounds like a nice guy, no? And I was like, yeah, he sounds like a nice guy. What does history tell us about this guy? It's kind of different, right? So he allows Paul to have some autonomy. His friends are allowed to come over. We know in Caesarea, Philip the evangelist, his four daughters are there. We know that other missionaries are in Caesarea. So Paul is able to bring people in. The church is able to visit him. He's able to continue teaching. And then we read the craziest verse in this entire chapter, verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla. There's her name, his wife Drusilla, whose, whose family is significant in the New Testament. She was Jewish. Isn't that fascinating? 
And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Does that blow your mind? That God literally had Paul taken to Caesarea specifically so Paul could share the gospel with this unreachable guy by the name of Felix. He was married to Drusilla. Uh, Interesting, she is described historically as being very beautiful. She was married to some other guy. Uh, Felix divorced his second wife and then had the other guy taken out of the way so he could marry Drusilla. And so Paul began to share with this couple about the faith in Christ. Uh, Paul said in verse 25, he reasoned about righteousness and (laughs) self-control and the coming judgment. I mean, I think some of this had some application in Felix's life. Paul's like, look, your lifestyle and what it leads to, you need a savior. True righteousness comes through by faith in Christ. The scriptures say that Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. There are times where we will share the gospel with people and they will become alarmed. Because here's the reality. We've come to realize our, our place in God's economy that we are separated because of sin and what we earn because of that sin is death. And the reality that Jesus will judge the living and the dead, that is a terrifying reality. How many of you believe Felix came to faith? Wouldn't that be a great read? And then Felix expressed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, repented of his sins, and all of Judea was blessed. It doesn't read that way. (laughs) In fact, uh, it goes on to describe Felix, though being convicted, was still greedy. Felix just went back to being Felix. It says at the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. Why? What was he hoping to expect? Or receive? A bribe. A bribe that would never come. But nonetheless, Paul shared. Paul repetitiously, over a period of time, shared with Felix over and over and over again the message of faith in Christ. Verse 27, we are left on a somber note. It says, when two years had elapsed... Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor. Five words of the forgotten. You may feel forgotten. You may feel overlooked. Or that somehow God is taking you this far to drop you. Felix left Paul in prison. It reminds me of Joseph in the narrative of Genesis. Rightfully interpreting the chief cupbearer's dream, rightfully interpreting the chief baker's dream, and those dreams were fulfilled, but the text tells us that Joseph spent two more years in prison. Paul must have been scratching his head. The Lord said I was going to go to Rome, but here I am in this jail cell. Left and forgotten. The Lord Jesus said that Paul was going to Rome. He never said it was going to be easy. Neither did he say it would be quick. Next week we'll pick back up in Caesarea. And now under the leadership of Portius Festus. But let's talk to this morning of some applications. First of all, a clear conscience. You know, these words have been running through my mind all week. I always take pains to have a clear conscience. 
He tells me the gospel impacted the way that Paul lived his life. Every day he strove to uh, live a life uh, that was faithful. Not perfect. Frail faithfulness is the best that we can strive for. (laughs) My daily prayer has become more Jesus. May I have your eyes, your ears, your mind, your heart, your hands, and your feet. May I be faithful in view of my frailty to your purposes today. And guess what, family, where that faithfulness begins? It does not begin first and foremost here in the church. My faithfulness is to begin at home with my family who can testify to my frailty, but also to that desire of faithfulness. To have that clear conscience that there's nothing hidden, my Christian life isn't compartmentalized, but that before the Lord and before people, my life is being lived, striving towards faithfulness. I will tell you there is nothing greater than the gift of a clear conscience, and there is nothing more tormenting than a conflicted conscience. Please listen to this. When we are faithful in our frailty, y'all listen, if you can, if you can hear me, say yes. Can you hear me right now? Don't zone out. The cowboys will still be losing by the time you get home. <laughs> Sorry. I, I love you. And it's hard being a cowboy fan. I, you know, back to the discussion. Frailty. I think it's actually a pretty ap- applicable discussion, frailty. But when we are faithful in our frailty, guess what? Our hearts will be full and our conscience will be clear. I'm going to say that again. When we are faithful in our frailty, our hearts will be full and our conscience will be clear. I invite you into those similar waters this week of a clear conscience. Secondly, sharing the gospel with hard hearts. It's hard, man. It is hard to share the gospel with people who are are wrongfully using us or taking advantage. It's hard to share the gospel with people with ulterior motives. Paul, for two years, shared with with Felix, knowing that he was being used by Felix, but nonetheless, Paul shared the gospel because to him, what mattered more than how he was treated was that the gospel was shared. And my encouragement to you is, no matter how hard somebody's heart seems or how impossible they seem to be reached, if they are even slightly curious about the Jesus that is in you, share. Live a life that is winsome, that people see Christ in you. And even if you think there is no way on God's green earth that that person would ever, in a million years, ever give their life to Christ, share if they show even the slightest interest. Because you have no idea how God can penetrate the hardness of the human heart. He raises the dead both physically and spiritually. Share the gospel with those who are even slightly curious. And then finally, I speak to the forgotten today. Maybe you feel forgotten. There's a somber note in verse 24, or in verse uh, chapter 24. Desiring to do the Jews a favor, 
Felix left Paul in prison. Can you imagine being forgotten with somebody else's favor? We may feel forgotten. And there are times where we feel forgotten by people, we feel overlooked or mistreated or thrown away, and it's easy to get mad at them, but deep down, who are we really mad at? Who are we really frustrated with? I think our frustration is with the Lord. Have you ever felt that God has you at a red light? I'm not talking about just a red light, although they are really irritating, especially when there's, there's literally, there was no one else on the road. We were the only car at the light, and it wasn't turned. You ever feel that way? But in life, and you're like, hey, sometime now, whenever, Lord, do you ever feel like your timetable and God's timetable, they're not lining up, and you're like, hey, could you speed this up? I'm seriously still in this job? Really? I'm seriously still in this marriage? Really? I'm seriously still in this church? Really? I'm seriously still on earth? Why won't you take me home? There are times in our life where we get frustrated because God is not moving according to our calendar. But guess what, family? God is far more concerned with our character development than our circumstantial comfort. And sometimes the greatest blessings in our life is that he keeps us where we're at. But it doesn't mean you are forgotten. In first service, there was a pastor who came in came up to me after first service, tears streaming down his cheeks. Give me a big old hug, and he says, I have felt forgotten. And I walked away from the ministry. And now I know I'm not forgotten. God still has a purpose for my life and family. I'm telling you right now, you may feel forgotten right now, but God has a purpose for your life. In seminary, I went through a period of time where I felt forgotten by God. It made me one cynical human being to be around. And guess what? It lasted for about two years. <laughs> the irony. But looking back, I realize that not a single minute was wasted. And it has proven to be some of the foundation that God has built later ministry and family and experiences on. You are not forgotten. I will not leave you nor forsake you, declares the Lord. The purposes he has for your life will be fulfilled. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace today. Your goodness is evident. The fact that the Son has risen. And Jesus, you, the Son of God, have risen from the dead. Your love for us is, is demonstrated in the greatest demonstration under heaven. For you so loved the world that you gave your only Son. To you today, you may be sitting here and your heart may be hard like Felix's. Maybe you think to yourself, ah, I don't know. This whole Jesus thing, could he really, can he save my life? Maybe you feel so far gone, there's no way. But please listen, Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. The Bible says that it is our sin, it is our separation from God that leads to death. Jesus paid the price, he paid the penalty, he paid it in full. 
He was buried in the grave, and he has conquered sin and death, and he is risen. And the Bible declares that all who believe in him, all who trust in him, all who seek him and ask for forgiveness and in faith believe that Jesus has died for them and has risen, the Bible declares there is salvation of the soul. Friend, if you do not have Jesus as your Savior, you have not received eternal life. You need to be born from above, born again. A spiritual birth. And the Bible declares if you believe you are born from above. And so if that is you, in the quietness of your heart, tell him, Lord Jesus, I believe. I believe that you died for me and you were buried. I believe you've risen. Please, Jesus, save my life. If that is your heart's prayer, you've just passed from death to eternal life. The Holy Spirit has come. You are now a new creation. You are forever a son or a daughter of God. Welcome to the family. Lord, give us greater faith today to approach you authentically. Give us greater faith to serve you fruitfully and faithfully. We pray for that gift of a clear conscience. We pray for greater faith to endure times of waiting and trust that you have purpose for us. Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap a harvest if we don't lose heart. Do not quit. 